welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, that is the expression of our hearts. Lord, we pray that your will would be done, your kingdom would, would be visible and um, palpable in this world, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we know that every good thing comes from you, and so we thank you for all the blessings you've given us, blessings of food and shelter and uh, family and friends and work and all the different blessings you've given we know come from you, and we thank you for that. And we come before you, Lord, knowing that we are a sinful people that need forgiveness, and yet we come before you boldly because we come in Christ. We come being assured that our sins have been forgiven, but Lord, as we come, we pray that you would give us the grace to forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord, as you've forgiven us. And Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would drive away the temptations of our hearts. Lord, we pray that being in your word would change us from the inside out. We pray, Lord, that being with you, our Father, would, would alter our hearts, that we would be filled with joy and freed from the, the, the temptations of sin in such a way that we could live for you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians first, and then we'll be in Acts, and we're going to be talking about what the church is. What is the church? So people have a lot of different opinions about the church, and so we want to look at what the church is designed to be. And guys, we're Americans, and Americans are obnoxiously confident, and we're obnoxiously confident that we can make things bigger and better and faster and more powerful, anything, okay, whether it's a phone or a car or whatever. And we tend to think that about the church. Like, let me add it, I can make it bigger and more powerful and faster, and, and, all the, and I can modify it. But we need to step back and go like, well, what is the church? Before we go tinkering with it, what is the church? And Paul is going to answer for us what the church is in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 22. And Paul gives us two different kinds of answers. The first answer he gives us in the beginning is he tells us a story. He tells us a story of reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. And then the second thing he does is he gives us three metaphors, three images of what the church is like. So we're going to look at those two things. First, we'll look at what we are as a church in a story. And the story that he has here is that we, the church, are a people reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. And you might think that that order is a little strange, that I would say we're reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. You'd say, well, isn't being reconciled to God the first thing, and then we're reconciled to each other? And of course it is, but in this passage, Paul doesn't start there. He starts with our reconciliation with each other. Um, take a look at verse 11 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law 
of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the gospel is about our reconciliation with God vertically and our reconciliation with each other horizontally. And he starts here by really dwelling on the horizontal first. It isn't until verse 16 that he starts really talking about our reconciliation with God, but he talks about our reconciliation with each other. Guys, the church is a people reconciled to each other. And in our very hyper-mobile society where there's lots of churches in every city, um, we can sometimes run away from our calling to reconcile with each other. If something happens, somebody offends you or whatever, you can just go down the street to another church and not deal with it. But guys, in Ephesus, very likely there's one church, and there's not a whole lot of moving around. And so if you had a problem, you either sit you know, across the room from each other and brood, or you reconcile. And the reconciliation work that, that God did in Ephesus was particularly amazing because it was between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, who hated each other for generations, Okay, and I'm not exaggerating this. The text actually uses the word enmity and hostility. Okay, I didn't bring that to the text. It's right there. They hated each other. They had generational hatred, and it wasn't just you know somebody snubbed somebody or said an unkind word or didn't validate them in some way. Like there were there were probably violence that had occurred between these people. There were real grievances that had gone on for generations. And God in this church um, did this amazing miracle of reconciliation. And he did this work of reconciliation, this amazing work to display his wisdom and power to the world. And not only did it display his wisdom and power to the world, it displayed his wisdom and power to the uh, angelic realm even. If you look in chapter 3 verse 10, he says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So this is a display of God's wisdom to humans, which we just think about the humans. To the humans and the angelic realm sees this too. And, it's, and it shows God's wisdom and his power. And then what God does with this display of wisdom and power is he focuses all the glory directly on his son in this. And we see that in, in verse 14. He says, he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace. And I love that. He himself is our peace. Jesus isn't just a, our peacemaker. He's not even just a peace proclaimer. He is our peace. His person is our peace. And our peace with who? Look at the context. You might be kind of thrown off. Who's the peace with? Jesus is our peace with each other, actually. If you look at the context, it's with each other. Jesus is our peace, our reconciliation with each other. And God has made his son the centerpiece of this reconciliation miracle for all the world to see. Isn't that amazing? And, and the way that Jesus did it, you can see in verses 14 through 15, he did it by, Jesus did it by making something, he did it by breaking something, he did it by abolishing something. Do you see what he made? Look in verse 14. It says that Christ made Jews and Gentiles, these people that were totally hostile to each other, into one new humanity. Look at verse 14. He himself is our peace and made us both one. When you came to trust in Jesus, you were united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you, and the Holy Spirit is also present with the Father and the Son in heaven. And so you have a connection to Christ via the Holy Spirit. You're, we call that union with Christ. And it's something that's throughout Ephesians. Every time he says in Christ, he actually means you're connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's hidden there in plain sight, but every time it says in Christ, that's union with Christ. And union with Christ is great because he saves us through this. He gives us 
uh, legal results from that, and he gives us life results. The legal results are, just like a marriage union, when you um, become husband and wife and you get married, you share assets and liabilities. When you got united to Christ, when you came to trust in him and got united with him, just like in a marriage union, you shared assets and liabilities. Who had the assets? Jesus. Who had the liabilities? You did. Your sin in that union, your sin was given to him on the cross, and he paid the debt for that. That union cost him that. And then his perfect righteous life got credited to you as if you'd done it. And so there are legal results. There's also life results, right? That because you're connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, his life can now flow in through you. He made us one with Christ. But what's really cool is because he made us one with Christ, he made you one with Christ, and you one with Christ, and you one with Christ. What did he do? He made us all one. If we're all connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit, then guess what? We're all one. And he says here that he actually created, between these two very hostile groups of people, when they came to trust in Christ, he created one new man. Take a look at that in verse 15. He says he created in himself one new man, or one new humanity in the place of two. Isn't that amazing? That's how he, he, he reconciled us. And that's how he reconciles us in this room, that we aren't separate from each other anymore because we're united to Christ. And then he broke something down. Look at verse 14. It says, He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant gave very strict eating laws and all kinds of different things. And it was to make Israel distinct people so that they could be a light to the Gentiles. But what was a distinction, sin turned into a division. And what was separate became superiority. And so there was this attitude problem between Jews and Gentiles and, and, and a ton of conflict that kind of ensued there. And Christ has ended that hostility between these very diverse people by breaking down that barrier, it says, in his flesh. On the cross, Jesus, as his body was torn on the cross, he tore away the divisions that stand between his people. Isn't that amazing? You think about a division that's between you and another believer, you need to be thinking about how can we live this out practically that that barrier would be taken down because on the cross, Jesus, as he was torn apart, he tore down the divisions that stand between us. And so he he made something, he, he, he tore something down, and then it says he abolished something. It says he abolished the Mosaic law in his flesh. Take a look at it. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Through Jesus' life and death, he fulfilled all those Mosaic laws, and he actually has ended those, and, he, and it creates a great unity between Jews and Gentiles, and we can see that like in Acts 10. Remember, Peter gets that vision And he's always been kosher. He's never kind of broken the dietary laws. And God gives him this vision of a sheet that comes down with all these animals on it. And it appears they're alive because he says, you know, kill and eat, right? And there's all kinds of random animals on this thing. And he's like, oh, Lord, I'd never do that. And he's like, eat it, you know? And so he, in the vision, he does that. And then he's invited to Peter's house, right? Or Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And he's able to come in and eat with Cornelius and share the gospel. And him and his friends all get saved. Um, uh, Jesus broke down, he abolished those laws so that we could connect with people, right? The reason why you're able to eat bacon or uh, eel, I love eel. Don't you love eel and like a little sushi roll, the next meal? Some of you guys like some eel? You can eat eel before because it doesn't have real scales, not really fish. It's kind of in this weird category. So we can eat bacon, we can eat eel and things like that, things that were forbidden in the Mosaic Law, not just for our own pleasure, but so that we could go across the street or across town or across the world and eat with somebody and share Christ with them. Isn't that an amazing thing that Jesus did? And he did that through the cross. 
And that just shows, guys, how serious God is about you all reconciling with each other, right? It was at the cost of the cross that we reconcile with each other. It's God's eternal plan. If you look at Ephesians 1, his eternal plan was to take these hostile elements of people and unite them into one body. And it was to highlight his wisdom to the world and to the angelic realm and to focus all the glory that were produced directly on Jesus and to make all of human history about Jesus. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to spotlight Jesus as the center of all human history. One global uh, new humanity, one global church lifting up Christ. And that eternal plan was to bring together hostile elements. I love this because God was like, I could just take a bunch of Jews and make the church, or I could make it a little more interesting, you know? And I could take people that are natural enemies and put them together, right? And that's what he decided to do. Look at verse 16. It says, and reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Guys, that's what the church is. The church is hostile elements, right? Made into one, reconciled to, to God together in Christ. And so, have you guys ever had any conflict in the church? Disagreement? Conflict? Somebody rub you the wrong way? It makes a lot more sense when you realize that God made the church out of hostile elements, okay? He took hostile elements, makes them one, to reconcile them together to God through Christ. And that, that um, and I think he's, he wants to display his power, right? It's easy to take a whole bunch of people that agree on everything. They're all politically the same, which we're not. Um, we're all, you know, have the same life choice, same eating desires, the same habits, the same preferences, things like that. That's easy. But God wanted to do something that would produce far more glory for Jesus, which is to take a bunch of people that naturally wouldn't even be friends. And this has massive implications, guys, for us and our need to reconcile with each other. Because I know a lot of you guys in this church, a lot of you, had all but given up on the local church before you came here. And I've talked to many of you about it. You're like, I was done, right? I was just done, done, done. I tried this a bunch of times, and I'm just done. You know? You guys ever felt that way? I've certainly felt that way. And you're like, pastor? Yes, I've felt that way right? But then you came to realize that like living without the local churches isn't an option for a true Christian. And so you're like, ah, oh, he's got me there. Okay, let's see what we can do here, right? We can't say, I want Jesus, but I don't want his people, the church, right? Because this passage here says that it, the church is a people that are reconciled to each other and God. That reconciliation with each other and God is one package. Take a look at it in verse 16. He says, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's like a package deal, right? Reconciliation with his people and reconciliation with him, it's one thing. We're reconciled in one body together. And Christ is our peace with each other and with God. So he reconciles us as a people. And he's always, that shouldn't be a surprise, he's always done that. Throughout the Old Testament, he's always reconciled the people. He's always gathered a people. We are a we, not just a me, right? And we absolutely, guys, must seek reconciliation with each other. No feuds can be allowed to fester. And it's going to take work, but it's worth it. Guys, if we refuse to be reconciled with each other, we're actually living against God's eternal plan to magnify Jesus in the world. How do you think that's going to go? We're going to resist God's eternal plan to magnify Jesus in the world? Probably not going to go well for you, right? Not, not for God. He's going to do his thing. Our unity, guys, displays God's wisdom and power to the world and the angelic creatures. And the, what I take from that is, like, even if you don't think any human knows that feud you have with other believers, they know. They see it. 
And that's important too. Our unity is the way that the Father has eternally planned to exalt the Son. But guys, be encouraged. We have everything we need in Christ to reconcile with each other. You might have some deep issues, okay? But God's done this before, right? He reconciled Jew and Gentile. He reconciled you to himself. He can certainly reconcile you with any other believer. And if we refuse to do this, guys, it will affect our communion with God. It will. I love verse 18. Verse 18 is cool, and I have a very simple diagram. It's not that impressive. Don't get excited. Um, But I like verse 18. So verse 18 says, Through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And if you think about, like, you know, you're trying to connect with God, you're, you're praying, like, here's you. And let's say this is the way you kind of envision it. Here's God the Father. And you're just, like, really trying to kind of connect with him. That's not what this verse says, right? This verse says that actually the real state is here's you and you're in, in what? Or in who? In the Spirit. You see that? Through him we both have access in one Spirit. So you're actually in... The Spirit, Holy Spirit, right? And it says that we come through the Son to the Father. Isn't that amazing? That anytime you are praying, anytime you are in the Word or meditating or whatever, you're actually able to have access to God because you are in the Spirit coming through the Son to the Father. The Trinity is like surrounding you. Each person in the Trinity having a role to play in enhancing your communion with God. Let me ask you this, though. Who else is in that verse? Take a look at it. I like the way you put your glasses on. You were like, I'm looking. What's that? We, right? So that person you want to reconcile with? What are you doing in here? I'm trying to connect with God. Who invited you in the circle? You don't deserve to be in here. And it's like, oh, really? I don't deserve being here? Do you deserve being in here? No, right? Like, our communion with God is a communal communion. You know what I mean? Like, they're in there too, right? And we know this. We know, guys, that, that our communion with God can be affected by our lack of reconciliation with other believers, right? That may be your problem with your time in the Word or meditation right now is that you are actively warring against this other person who's in here, right? That's frustrating. I mean, even in the Lord's Prayer that we recited together, what does it say? There's a speed bump in there. And if we give up doing the Lord's Prayer regularly, we don't get the speed bump, which we need. It says this, forgive us our debts. And then what? You're like, no. Why does that have to be in there? Right? As we forgive our debtors. We commune with God as a we, not a me. And so we have to be reconciled. So who are we as a church? Um, We are the church. We are a people reconciled to each other and to God. That's our story. Now, Paul does another thing in here, which is really fun, is he gives us three metaphors. And I'll show them to you. Listen for the metaphors in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being in the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Do you guys see what the three metaphors are? There's three metaphors or three images for who we are as a church. And I don't have a diagram for this, but you could make one right now. Wouldn't that be cool? And the three things are we're we're kingdom citizens, so kingdom. We're members of a family, so family. And we're stones in a temple. So three images for who we are as a church, ways to think of ourselves, because you're like, okay, the story was helpful, now I'm going to hit you on more of the artsy side and give you images. And the images are kingdom, family, 
temple first, kingdom. Draw a diagram. Maybe we'll have a contest. What would you win? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But kingdom, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. We, most of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. Uh, we Gentiles were strangers and aliens to God's nation. But the cool thing in this passage is that as Christians, we are all citizens of God's kingdom. You think about citizen and kingdom, and what does that mean? Well, being a citizen of a kingdom means belonging, and it means benefit. Okay, there's benefit and belonging when you're the, the member of a kingdom. The kingdom that was going on at this time, when Paul wrote this, was Rome, right? And Paul actually was a Roman citizen. He was a citizen of this kingdom that was at its peak, no signs of decline at this point. And his Roman citizenship was about belonging and benefit. In fact, this word for citizenship is the same one that came up in Acts 22. You remember what happened there? One of the, one of the um, Roman uh, guards, he he was going to whip him, right? He was going to whip Paul. They were going to examine him by flogging, whip him until he would talk, right? And then Paul all of a sudden says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And they got, they freaked out because they had tied him up and they were about to whip him and he was a Roman citizen. They aren't allowed to do that. And, and the leader that was there said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. And he goes, well, I he said, I got citizenship, but I got it by a large sum of money. And Paul said, oh, I'm a citizen by birth. And then they, they really were freaked out because they had violated the rights of a Roman citizen, right? For Paul to be a citizen meant belonging and benefit. It meant respect. It meant protection. Um, often cases, it meant great prosperity. That's why they would buy it, right? Paul was a citizen of the greatest kingdom on earth, and all of its power was working together for his blessing. Now, of course, Rome is gone, and all those great empires are gone. But in Christ, guys, you have become a citizen of the one empire, the one nation, the one kingdom that will never end. And that kingdom is ruled by King Jesus who will never die. And the boundaries of this kingdom will extend across the entire world from sea to sea. And the prosperity of that kingdom will never end because it's ensured by the creator of the world. Isn't that amazing? And when that kingdom comes on earth in its fullness, like we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, you will enjoy the full benefits of your citizenship. And it says in verse 19 that you will enjoy it with all the saints, which I take to be the Old Testament saints, those who longed for the Messiah and waited for the Messiah, and we're going to inherit this kingdom with them, with people like Adam and Enoch and Job and Abraham and King Nebuchadnezzar, believe it or not, um, and Eve and Sarah and Rahab and Hannah and Queen Esther. I mean, you are citizens, if you're a believer in Christ, of that kingdom, the real kingdom that's coming. And citizenship has huge benefits, and Jesus has paid for them. Um, and one thing I want to say about that is that the kingdom of God, guys, this is very important in our time. 2016 to about now. It's very important for you to remember that the kingdom of God is your political identity. Okay? When you think of your politics, your political identity, it's the kingdom of God. And I think this is very important because we have a diverse amount of political views here. And you're like, oh yeah, you're just saying that. No, no, seriously. We do, okay? And that has the potential of like tearing our church apart as people are passionately about different things. But we don't divide over that because those are our political opinions. Our political identity, though, is the kingdom of God, right? Amen? And so if some other political identity is more important to you than the kingdom of God, you're doing your politics wrong, okay? Because your political identity is the kingdom. That is your true allegiance, and so the church is, I don't have anything to look at here. I don't know why I'm looking over there. The church is 
about the kingdom of God. Now, the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is bigger than the church. It's different than the church. But when we gather, guys, we are an embassy of the kingdom. Isn't that cool? When we gather, because you're all kingdom citizens, if you're trusting in Christ, you're a kingdom citizen. Kingdom's not here. Kingdom's fully coming. It's coming here. It's, it's here to a degree. It's an already or not yet kingdom. So there's aspects of it here, but it's going to fully come um, when Christ returns. The kingdom will fully come in. But in this time, we've got all these citizens, right, of the kingdom. And when we gather, we're an embassy of the kingdom. You know what an embassy is? It's a little pocket of your home country in a foreign land. So we're in a foreign land. And when we gather together, we become an embassy of the kingdom, a little pocket of the country to come. Which is cool because we gather together and we encourage each other to live in the ways that we should live in, in that kingdom, right? And we um, live in such a way that our living together actually becomes a taste of the kingdom to come. And we can actually invite strangers and aliens a, a, to join the kingdom now, to become citizens now, to seek asylum and get citizenship in the kingdom of God. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that make it all kind of worth putting together? You know, you got to bring all these chairs and do all this crazy stuff, you know, but we're forming an embassy of the kingdom. So that's the first image. Second image is family. Look at verse 19. It says we're members of a household of God. Now, this is more intimate, right? It's more intimate to be a member of a family than a kingdom. If citizenship's about belonging and benefit, then membership in God's household's about care, right? Being a family means caring for each other. Um, every Christian, guys, is designed to live in a tight, local church family. Not alone, not just alone as our own families, but at, in a local church family. That's the way our people have always lived their lives. That's the way they've always flourished. If you look at verse 17, it's a really cool passage. It says, and he, it's saying Christ, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. So Christ comes, he lives a perfect life, he dies, he's raised, he's ascended, he sends his spirit, and then he preaches through his people out into the world. And he preaches to people that are far off and people that are near. And when they receive Christ, they form into churches, into church families. This is the way it's always gone. We can watch it throughout Acts. And so God gathers families all over the place, uh, local church families. Um, God's gathered this church, and I was just kind of reminiscing over it because this is our one-year anniversary of becoming an actual church, like in and of ourselves. And you say, well, I've been here a long time. I was like, surprise, we've actually been a church for a year. And I was thinking about, like, when did our, you know, because David was saying, like, tell a little bit of the history. And I'm like, okay, well, Abraham, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we won't start there. I was thinking, like, where do you start the history? And I was thinking, well, um, Tasha and I came down here in 2000 to start my veterinary practice. And um, we found a church here, actually in Menifee. It's weird how we ended back up in Menifee. It was called Menifee Valley Church. It's not here now. It's where Eagle Ridge is now. And uh, I was a little theologically irritating, okay? So as I was looking for churches, I'm calling all the pastors, and I'm going through my checklist. And I'm like thinking, man, if I got that call from that guy now, I'd be so annoyed. But anyway, I was super annoying. And the pastor was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're all for that, you know? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not exactly, I found out later, but he wanted me to come down, so we came down, and we went to church. First time we went there, it was Pastor Dave, Dave Prophet. Guy was insane, like just hyper, super hyper guy, older guy, super hyper, had, sometimes had a whiteboard, and um, he, just to show you how much energy this guy had, he'd go like door to door all week long, he'd go down to the serviceman center on Saturdays, and then he'd preach two sermons, right? He said, no big deal, two services, different sermons, two in the morning, why? There's no reason. 
Like, just do the same one twice. Nope, did two, because he liked to. Sometimes I'd stay for both. It was so exciting. He was like a really exciting Bible teacher, really enjoyed him. And, um, and then he broke our hearts by going back east to go plant churches. And he was like, hey, Eric, I want you to do the college ministry. And I was like, well, I can help, but I don't really want to do it. I have fear of public speaking. doesn't sound fun to me. And um, he said, no, no, you're going to do it. So he just gave it to me. It was like seven people. And uh, one of them was actually Josh White, one of the pastors here, was in there. He was 18 at the time. I was like 27. And, um, and over the next 10 years, that Bible study grew, and it was a really fun college ministry that we did. And David came in like 2003. A lot of you guys, we were talking to Sierra, it was like 2010. Uh, let's see, over here, Joel we knew, but he was in high school still. Um, let's see, uh, Tim, I think 2008 maybe. Um, bunch of you guys, super good. Um, let's see over here. Uh, well, the Tolapilos, Josh was coming to it, and so they were like listening to CDs and stuff of it. Darwin, Darwin came in 2003, and so um, it just kind of built over time. It was super fun, and over time, just preaching the gospel and, and digging in the word, God made us a family. God formed us into a family, and we knew that at some point we wanted to plant a church, and so uh, years later, when Covenant Grace French Valley wanted to plant a church, and we met some of you guys there, we kind of all were knitted together and decided, you know, what? we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to start a church in Menifee, and God brought us together as a family. And, and that's the model that God has here. It's very simple. I think as Americans, as Americans, we think of like church as family just doesn't sound powerful enough. Like we want to build something big and strong and respectable. And it's like family, you know? And so there's other models, right? As Americans, we like the model of theater, right? The theater, theater model would be you come here to see a production, you know, very quality, not that we're against quality, we'd love to do quality, and we're trying, um, but production, right, that it's a production, you come in, you kind of sit in theater, and you leave, right, you come and go, and, and that's it, you come to see the show, or um, a marketplace, you know, that the church is a place where you are a consumer, and you consume spiritual services, right? And so we have a huge staff for you to be able to get any spiritual services you need. It's like, well, I need something for, you know, uh, people that only have one kid who's very musical, and oh, yeah, we have ministry just for that. You know, it's like, okay, well, I'm like, I'm 37. Do you have a 37-year-old's group, you know? Like, I'm not 37, by the way. Uh, you're like, wait, you've aged. Um, so that there's all these specific things. We've got any service you want, right? We're, we're a marketplace. Um, but guys, the church is a family. And so if you see the church as a family, you re relate to the church in a way different than if you thought it was a theater or marketplace. For example, like in our valley, it's very common for people to kind of hop around and rotate churches. They go to this church this week, this church that week. And that's fine if the church is a marketplace or a theater, right? I mean, you go to different grocery stores and stuff. Um, but if it's a family, I think we can all agree that it, it's not healthy to rotate families. Okay, I think we could all agree that. I don't know if that's controversial. But uh, it's a family, right? And so you, you dig in and you really invest in a family. Um, seeing the church as a family also informs how you leave a church. You're like, downer. But I think this is important to mention. People don't know how to leave, you know? And so at some point, if you decide to leave our church, I'm not trying to make you leave. I'm just saying if you decide to leave, um, let us know. Okay? Because if you think of the church like you do a marketplace or a theater, you don't call staters and say, hey, I'm really thinking of going more, you know, to Barron's now or something. You don't have enough cheese, whatever. Okay? No. But if the church is a family, like, please let us know. Just, just disappear. 
And I think people disappear because they don't know what to do and it feels awkward and all this stuff. It, it happens, okay? So let us know because we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to make sure that we resolve any issues. We want you to leave, reconcile, leave in peace. Right? There's no reason to have that church burned me and all that. Let's not do that. Let's reconcile. Um, we want to learn from your experiences. Maybe there's something we need to grow in. Uh, maybe we're just not the right fit. Maybe we want to help you to find another church, you know? Maybe you're having a hard, you know, just not here. We don't know where we're going. Like, okay, like, that's fine. Uh, what are you looking for? Let me, let me help you find it. And we'd also like to send you off well. Um, one of the guys in our church, uh, he came from Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, the, the uh, Providence Orthodox Presbyterian. This is so cool. So he decides he's coming, tells the elders there, and they wrote this letter to us, to the elders of Covenant Grace Church, and then his name was a member of Providence Church, OPC. He left as a member in good standing to attend your congregation. We are glad to hear he's worshiping at your church and seeking membership. We pray for his continued growth and the use of his gifts among you. There's some personal elements I'll leave out. Not bad stuff. Um, we commend, and then his name, to you and recommend him as a member in good standing in both the local church and the kingdom of Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have any questions, and I love this part, or if he is not worshiping at your church, please contact us. I like that part. I like that. And if he's not there, let us know. But isn't that cool? I got that, and I was like, man, the Presbyterians know what they're doing. Once again, like these guys. But that's great. We want to send you off well, right? We want to tell the next church, this guy's good. This guy's not a problem. He's great. He's gifted. Please receive him well. That happened in the New Testament, right? Paul's constantly writing like, hey, greet so-and-so, and this person's going to come to your church, and they're great. You know, like we want to be that, okay? Um, and seeing the church as a family also helps you know how to live it out together, right? We live as brothers and sisters, as a family. And it's really cool to see, I don't know if you guys realize how this comes together. I know you look at this and you think, man, this is so professionally laid out. Like, how did this happen? Let me tell you, okay? So in the morning, and this morning it was Casey. Casey's off picking up our trailer by, probably about 7 o'clock. He's over there hooking the trailer up. About 7.30, he pulls up here. Um, a bunch of us pull all the stuff out of the trailer, and it's, and it's done by kids, too. I don't know if that's breaking any labor laws, but a lot of our kids are actually doing this. By the way, it's really good for kids to serve in the church. It gives them ownership of the whole thing. They, they're so glad to be able to be a part of the team, right? And so put all the stuff together. Kids are helping. Sound people come in, run cables and stuff. Worship team gets set up. Um, communion gets set up. Usually Margie's up here, and she's you know, gloved up, and she's breaking the bread with her own little hands you know, getting communion ready. Um, hospitality, somebody's putting out donuts, so when, like, kids come in, or adults, you can shove a donut in their mouth and they feel comfortable. That's important, right? Um, we got greeters. We got um, children's ministry, which is a really cool thing, by the way, that we have an opportunity to care for each other's kids. It's a very practical way of being a family together. Because, you know, when you're a family and you got your extended family come over, those kids become your kids, and you're kind of managing them and entertaining them and doing all that. And that's what we do for each other with children's ministry. We've got a prayer team that's going to be in the back of the table there to lift your cares up before the Lord. We've got deacons, so the deacons would actually um, help with physical cares. And so we got them here. Where's Tim? Tim's right back there. Um, he's one of the deacons, his wife, uh, Vanessa, and then Mike, wherever he is, maybe in children's ministry. Um, and then what's really cool is there's this whole hour 
um, from about 11 to 12, where we have this room and people just minister to each other. And I see people like Wayne and all you guys praying for each other and sharing burdens and, and encouraging each other. And then there's teardown, like it's kind of random. Everybody just throws everything back in the trailer. And then Casey, like 12.30, he's still out, you know, uh, putting the trailer away. Everyone has something that they do. It's really cool. So when you come, come. If you want to come set up, you can. We're there. We're here all the time. You don't have to sign up. You just come up. But, uh, but during that last hour, just staying and really ministering to each other, that's huge, right? That's caring. That's being a part of the family. Um, and then every week, there's ministry throughout the week at uh, Kenny and Deborah's house. They have a Bible study at their house in the afternoons. Um, Wednesday, we've got youth ministry, and that's a really cool way to to, to care for one another. Um, Thursdays, we've got women's studies starting on the 17th. The marriage group that David's going to start in February on Friday nights. So one more way for us to connect as a family. Um, we've got a men's hike on the 19th. We're going to Joshua Tree. There's still a government shutdown. We're still going. It's going to be crazy probably there. Trash everywhere. But um, January 19th, we're doing that, um, which is going to be great. But we do stuff like beach trips. A lot of us vacation together. Dinners. Lunch, coffee, praying together, discipling one another. And it's really a cool thing. I mean, family's really happening here. So I'm not like, this is what we should do. Why aren't you doing it? Here, sign up. No, it's happening. Become a part of it if you aren't already. But you guys know that that family life together is looking increasingly bizarre in our culture. You guys realize that? You guys just being here is really bizarre. You guys realize that? Like all your neighbors, it wasn't a traffic jam leaving your neighborhood this morning, was there? No, it wasn't like, oh man, church traffic. No, 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 it was silent, right? It's bizarre, guys. There's a huge cultural tide that's moving you away from doing any kind of life together, right? Our culture is discipling us to be more and more individualistic, to think of ourselves more and more as a me than a we. I I heard this stat. Stats are always sometimes depressing. This one is, did you realize that seven out of eight practicing Christians don't have even one spiritual conversation all week. And these aren't just identify as Christian. This practicing means they like read their Bibles, they go to church, stuff like that. So 17% have one spiritual conversation a week. I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm talking about like you could have that with your wife. You could have that with your kid. Like you, another believer, this is a low bar, this is easy, okay? And, and they don't do it. What do you think the effects of that are? You know, there's no spiritual conversation. There's no fellowship. It's what Jerry Bridges talked about. It's a crisis of caring. Guys, we in the West value freedom so much more than community. And I was, I was listening to this podcast, and it was a really cool, they had this image where they were talking about three buckets. And the first bucket is um, freedom. And the second one, community. And the last one was meaning. And what they're saying is, in the West, we so value freedom, we got this bucket so full. And when we do everything to maximize our freedom, it's actually kind of draining out over here. What they said is that because we pursue freedom the way we do, we're sacrificing both community and meaning. Okay? We sacrifice meaning when we say things like, I'm spiritual but not religious. What I'm saying is that I have a spirituality that I make up on my own. I define my own meaning. I define my own truth, right? Well, that's not real meaning, obviously, right? That's, that's a bone-dry tank of meaning. And, or, or community that, you know, and a lot of us fall into this category, that our, our community tank is bone-dry. Why? Because we're valuing freedom so much. It turns out that we actually have to give up a bit of freedom to have community. 
You guys know this. Even if you set something up, you go like, okay, let's get together. You know, maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's just like you want to get together for dinner. And then there's this thing that night. It's like a huge magnet. You're like, I can't leave. And it's like, stay home, stay home, stay home. And there's all these reasons. You're tired, aren't you? You're tired. You don't have time for this. Oh, don't you feel sick? Right? It's like, it's this huge draw. What is that? We're being discipled. That's the, that's the tidal pull that's pulling us back, right? You feel like you want to cancel. When you feel like you want to cancel, guys, realize you're being discipled. That real community, we're going to have to give up some freedom. I'm not saying you have to give up all of it. You have to give up some freedom to have community. You know what I mean? And it, and it happens in that dying to yourself moment there. Guys, there's a tide against us to do this. And it's worth swimming against. Okay, so that's... that's um, that's family. Last image, and this will be quick, which is temple. Take a look at 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This third image is temple. So if, um, if uh, being a citizen of the kingdom is about belonging and benefit, and family is about caring for one another, then temple is about worship, right? We're being built together as a temple for worship. Um, it's remarkable, guys, actually, that Paul would talk about, we don't see it now, but to them it'd be crazy, that, that he's talking about one temple to worship God, God's true end times temple, being made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Because the Gentiles weren't even allowed into the most inner courts of this place. There was an outer court for the Gentiles, and that was it. And there was a sign that was very emphatic about keeping out from there, right? And so they weren't even allowed close. Um, but there were prophecies, including in Isaiah 2, that someday all the nations would stream to God's holy mountain and to his temple, and that they would be allowed in. But what we have in this verse is not just that the Gentiles are allowed to come to the temple, but they're a part of the temple. And that's just like earth-shattering for these people here that they would become a part of the true temple. Let's look at the parts. It says that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So us, as a worshiping temple, a spiritual temple, we're built on the apostles' teaching, right? So Jesus hands off the truth of the gospel and many other things uh, to the apostles. It's written in scripture. We devote ourselves to that. That's the foundation. And then what's the cornerstone? Cornerstone's Jesus. You guys know what cornerstones are for? It goes in the corner, okay? That's obvious. And then what it does is it defines the angles of the building. So you drop a cornerstone down, you, that would have a perfect, ni nice right angle, right? And then you would build off of there. You need a, a spot to build off of. And so Jesus is the one who shapes us, okay? So we're built on the teaching of the apostles and prophets, and then we're shaped by Christ, that he defines what our lives look like. We compare them to him. And then what are the stones? We're the stones, right? We're living stones being built up in a temple. And what's a temple for? A temple's for worship. So as we're fitted together tight in community, based on the apostles' teaching, being shaped by Jesus, then we become this worshiping, living, portable temple. Isn't that cool? Because in the Old Testament, it was all about come and see. Come to the temple and see and know God here. The New Testament's all about go and tell. That's why we don't have a temple, by the way. Uh, if you think there's certain groups like the, the Mormons, they're fixated on temples, right? They're like, God's always wanted a temple. We build temples. But what they're not understanding is the end times temple is a people and we're portable. It's a portable living temple. And so as missionaries go out, as um, people go out and plant churches, it spreads the walls of this big temple and it's built to increase the worship of God. 
I mean, that's what missions is about. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's extend the worship of God. And someday that temple fills the whole world and worship occurs in this whole place. But notice, this is kind of interesting. The temple's still under construction. You see that? It says being joined grows and being built. It's under construction. That might explain a lot to you, right? You might look at the church today and say, this doesn't look that great. You know, I mean, I'm talking the church in general. It doesn't look that great. Is this it? This is the temple to worship God? Look at these people. And what this passage would say is, he's not done building it yet, right? It's under construction, right? It's like part in our dust. <laughs> you know, this is not being, it hasn't been built yet, right? But what it's becoming is beautiful. It says in Ephesians, it says that, that God will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. And so that's the outcome, but right now you're seeing the construction, right? And verse 22 says, and this is crazy, so this temple, it's, you see it, it's not what it should be yet, right? And yet look at verse 22. It's a dwelling place for God. So God sees fit to live in this incomplete, imperfect structure. You guys ever remodeled your house and lived in it during? You guys ever done that? Yeah? Any of you have a husband that like, just took forever to fix something? We had a bathroom. I tore it up. And then I went to Mongolia. <laughs> literally. And then I came back, still didn't fix it. It was torn apart for years. It's terrible to live in something under construction, right? It's terrible. Um, God himself is willing to live in this incomplete, imperfect structure of the church. And he loves it. It says it's holy to him. Why? Because every stone has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so he's content to live in it. With all the dust, with all the mess, doesn't look that great yet. And he sees fit to live in it. And I just want to say this to you, if you think about like giving up on the church, is you should be content to live in it too. Right? God himself is content to live in an incomplete, imperfect structure that he's building. We should be content to live in it too. He's content to live in you. You are an imperfect, right? An imperfect, incomplete structure, and he's willing to live in you. As we take the Lord's Supper, I just want to focus our, ourselves here to um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and it says this. As we take the Lord's Supper, let's think about this passage. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same bread. And I love how the focus here of communion is to remind us of our unity. That just as there's one loaf, which was broken by actual hands down into little bits today for us to take, um, God has made us one body. As we take from one piece of bread, he's made us one body in Christ's one body. And so as you take the bread and the cup, we remember what he did to do that. What he did was, you remember the bread, that his body was, uh, was broken, was actually pierced. And the reason why we leave these up here is to remind us that Jesus' real wrists, real body, pierced for us to take away all of our sins, that he took all our liabilities, all of our debts. He took all of our sins, and he paid for them on the cross. And then we take the cup to remember that it's his blood that washes us clean of all of our sins, that we're stones in that living building that are totally washed clean. And even though we're not any way what we should be, he delights to live in us. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? So if you're trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, then I'd invite you during the next few songs to come up and take this. And it would be great this Sunday, no pressure, but it would be great if you take it with the person next to you. You know, take it with the person next to you. This simple prayer uh, for communion. You don't have to do something elaborate. 
Let's pray and take it together. 1 Corinthians 10 assures us that we have fellowship with Christ through his body and blood. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you and we just thank you for an opportunity to be reminded of the one loaf, the one body, that you've saved us in Jesus' one body, that you've made us spiritually one body, the church. And we just pray, Lord, that we would delight in your design. Lord, sin's made it hard to do that sometimes. We have not gotten along like we should. And we pray, Lord, that that would change, that we would desire to be reconciled with each other, that we would delight in being a family together, that we'd be excited to come to the house of the Lord every Sunday, and that we would be excited to meet with each other in homes, a coffee shop, or wherever we meet, that we'd be excited to do life together. Father, we pray for all the other um, churches that are taking your supper this morning, and pray for other churches in our valley, like Grace Bible Church, and Faith Bible Church, and Impact and uh, our buddy uh, Thor over at Center Church and um, for Heritage uh, Church. And as they're kind of moving around and still building their building, we pray, Lord, that you would be blessing them. We pray for the View Church. So thankful for the new building they got to get into. We pray, Lord, that they would reach their community in a great way. Um, we pray for Elevation Church, that you'd be blessing them. We pray for Revival as the, the biggest church in our area, Lord. We pray that it would be a, a great light. Lord, that you would um, do great things in that church for the whole area. And we pray, Lord, for your churches around the world. Some of them, they can't meet and have a, they have to meet underground. They have to meet in, in hiding. They can't have a kind of upfront embassy with a sign. And uh, we pray for them, Lord, that you'd be blessing them. We thank you, Lord, for making us a family together. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace as we take this bread and this cup, as we are fed by your son's very presence spiritual presence in us. We pray, Lord, that you give us the grace to maintain the unity of the church in whatever way we need to. If there's someone we need to be reconciled with, Lord, we pray that you would, in communion, strengthen us to do so. Lord, we desire to see the church the way you have envisioned the church, and we pray, Lord, that you would work through us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.